Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivagwani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Tobias Barker, who's the Chief Medical Officer of Paladina Health, which provides primary care services to self-insured employers using a value-based approach to care. Prior to joining Paladina Health, he served as Vice President of Medical Operations and Chief Medical Officer at CVS Health, which is one of the largest healthcare providers in the country. Dr. Barker was a driving force within CVS to shift the business focus from acute injuries and illnesses to a patient-centered model focused on primary care. Early in his career, Dr. Barker worked with Partners Health, traveling abroad to learn from and share best practices across different countries and cultures, including work in Kazakhstan, India, and the United Arab Emirates. So Dr. Barker, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks for having me. So we like asking all of our guests in their own words to describe their backgrounds and would love to hear what led you to uh, medicine and then cho choosing emergency medicine. Yeah, thanks. Well, you know, I was, I was born and raised under very humble conditions in a small town in South Dakota. As for my interest in, in medicine, uh, I actually entered college as a physics major but had a roommate who had a biology book, a high school biology book that I found fascinating and started taking biology classes in addition to my physics coursework. Ended up working in a cell biology lab and eventually things evolved to a love of medicine and I applied to medical school. So although it took a bit more time in college, I'm glad I deviated from my initial path and, and did that. Interestingly, this, the same thing happened in medical school where I was torn between direct patient care and medical research. So I applied for and was selected for a research scholarship that allowed me to live on the NIH campus where I spent just over a year working in the lab of Dr. Anthony Fauci on HIV. Oh. And it was uh, an amazing year and allowed me to fully commit to clinical care as my path forward. So again, that took a bit more time, but allowed for no regrets as I moved on uh, in my training. That's amazing. Um, so I have to ask about Dr. Fauci. I met him once when he came to Johns Hopkins. I was in medical school there and gave a talk about his, his pioneering HIV AIDS research, which maybe you contributed to as well. What was he like back when you worked with him there? And, and how is it you know, now that you see him on TV basically every day? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think the personality hasn't changed a whole lot, as you can imagine. I think one thing he's always been really, really, really good at is being able to assimilate you know he had multiple labs i was working in one of his labs but we would go to him at the end of the week and we'd say oh we found that you know interleukin 7 does this and someone else would say oh we found that this is how hiv responds to this and someone else would say something else and he'd just be listening and he'd say like of course i can't do his accent but he'd be like of course <laughs> it makes sense like this is happening so that happens and that happens so it, you know he's a brilliant scientist and able to assimilate a lot of data together kind of real time and it was great working with him. It's certainly been a, a voice of reason. And, and you may have seen there's this thing now called the Fauci effect that they're, they're saying um, med school applications are up about 20% this year. And I read that. Part of what they're attributing it to is the fact that you have great leaders like Dr. Fauci who are inspiring a generation. Yeah, thank goodness. Thank goodness. <laughs> so, so let's go to your partner's health experience. So another you know small world connection. I went to college and was taught by Paul Farmer briefly. And we also now work with the UGHE um, in Rwanda, which is Partners Health Rwandan Medical School, uh, give them free access to osmosis. So can you tell us about some of your international experience working with partners? Yeah, I, th I think, you know, I've been able to work in places where resources are so scant that 
you know, you can't intubate someone unless they have a family member that's there to be able to bag the patient because there's no ventilators. Um, and all the way to places where resources are so abundant that pretty much everyone gets a full MRI and then, you know, suffers the consequences of unnecessary follow-ups and procedures uh, for things that turn out to be nothing and everything in between. And so I've been able to get a, a nice appreciation for why different cultures and places do things and how that can play into our own practice. I really like a quote from Mark Twain, and I don't know the full quote, but it, it goes something like, travel is fatal to prejudice and narrow-mindedness. And I think it's a much <laughs> larger quote, but it's, I think it's a very true for many things, um, but definitely in medicine, it's easy to become very narrow-minded in what you think is the you know, right way to do things. And it's almost always beneficial to experience care being delivered in different ways. So those were great um, opportunities. Absolutely. And my, uh, my father uh, was trained in India as a physician and ran a hospital in South Africa, which is super under-resourced relative to what we see here in the U.S. And, you know, he's a general physician, but he was doing C-sections and ophthalmology surgeries, um, you know, because nobody else could do them. And uh, it's pretty remarkable to, to hear about those stories in global health. So after that experience, you spent nearly a decade with CVS leading their Minute Clinic program. And now with a lot of different organizations getting into retail healthcare, like Walmart Health, and obviously Walgreens partnering with Village MD, and we've had several of those guests on our Raise Line podcast, I would love to hear what drew you to CVS and what made you most proud of your time at CVS. It's important to know, first of all, that I haven't completely moved away from clinical work. I still do clinical shifts at the VA system here in Boston. But yes, I did realize fairly quickly, both in the U.S. and abroad, that you could take 50 great providers and they can do very little in a bad system. And conversely, establishing uh, good systems can help providers of all levels to be able to practice good medicine. So while I really enjoyed direct patient care, I felt that I could make a bigger impact at kind of an administrative leadership level. And that's what prompted me to kind of take that pathway. Regarding your question, some of the highlights, I think two of the big ones are virtual care. So I started the virtual care program for um, CVS Minute Clinic. And that was, you know, obviously a harbinger of things to come in the field. And we actually had two types, one that was more classic kind of direct video, and then another that was kind of a choose your own adventure where if you met certain criteria and you would be asked another question, and if that was okay, you'd be asked another question until finally, if, if at the end everything worked out, then all of that would get in front of a provider who would be able to look at it and make a decision within a certain limited time frame. So the virtual care was great. And I think the other one was the shift to more primary care. And as you know, Minute Clinic had forever been uh, the leader in kind of convenient acute minor injuries and ailments, but making the shift to be able to handle chronic diseases and support patients that had chronic diseases, I think was a big move as well. So those are two that I can think of that I think were kind of big shifts in how I was able to help the organization. Yeah, and it speaks for itself, especially how the infrastructure now at CVS is being used for vaccination in, in a big way, uh, obviously with, with COVID. So moving on to Paladina, obviously most of our audience know CVS as a household name. Not everyone's familiar with Paladina Health. Can you tell us a bit more about the company, You know what problem you're trying to solve, and then the sense of scale, as well as plans for growth? Yeah, so Paladina, soon to be rebranded as Everside Health. So as some background, most employers are self-insured when it comes to healthcare costs. 
So the employees might have an insurance card that says Aetna or United, but they're actually, those are just acting as kind of TPA, third-party administrators doing the back-end work. The employer is actually footing the bill. And those healthcare costs are rising 6 to 8% per year, which means it's a huge cost and it's rising quickly. So their employers are eager to find ways to control costs while still providing great care to their employees. And we partner with those employers and provide advanced primary care using better analytics um, from a population level, more time with patients, better access. You know, we don't build an insurer. So if we need to text, if we need to do a same day video appointment, there's nothing from a coding and billing standpoint that would stop us from doing whatever is needed to keep the patients healthy better specialty referral management. You know, if you need a knee replacement, making sure you're using someone that has low um, readmission rates, low infection rates, and, and finding the, the one that can do that most economically. So the result is everyone's really, you know, a winner. The patients feel like they have almost concierge level care with their access to, to providers. Our providers feel like they're back to kind of why they went to medical school and residency in the first place. They have smaller panel sizes and get to spend more time with their patients. And and much less a kind of administrative work. And the employers are saving money year over year uh, with this style of care. So the proof, I guess, is in the growth. When I started two years ago, we had 47 clinics and we have over 350 clinics now in 32 states and growing quickly. Talk a little bit about like the model. Is it is it value-based care where you know it's all capitated with the employers or is it fee-for-service? How do you all structure that? It's not fee-for-service. We're paid a per-member-per-month fee, and for every dollar put into that, the employer saves multiples of that on the back end through decreased ED visits, urgent care visits, um, better specialty management, and just more proactive care to be able to make sure that you know patients aren't getting neglected to the point where they actually need more expensive care. So it's not like rocket science, like you know, front load your primary care and you'll save multiples in the back end, but it works well, and there weren't a lot of people doing it. Yeah, um, especially the, the employer approach. So we, we've had several innovative primary care leaders, um, you know, Christopher Chen from Chen Med, Rushika, uh, Fernando Puli from Iora Health, and then also Vivian Lee from University of Utah, now Verily, and she wrote the book, The Long Fix. Yeah. One of the core differentiations is that you work directly with like self-insured employers, and that's your population, the employees of these uh, large organizations. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. You know, you've named some other players in the field who, uh, who we know well. The very similar models of putting time and resources into where it makes the most sense, not where the best coding and billing fee will come from. But you're right, it's, we're focusing on the employer sector. So obviously employee health and the future of uh, work has really been impacted because of COVID. I'm sure many of your clinics you probably built in metropolitan areas with a lot of your employer populations, you know, Palo Alto and Seattle and New York. Um, but now where everyone can work from home or will be working from home, uh, everything seems to have changed. So can you talk a bit about how COVID has changed the work that you do and your team does at, at Paladina Health? Yeah, so it's important that we're not um, in Palo Alto and Seattle, but we have found a big need in the very kind of blue collar. So unions, uh, municipalities, you know, we provide the, the care for state of Colorado, state of New Jersey, Teamsters. These are places where we know the member's probably going to be there for a while. It's not like a Facebook or 
an IT firm or maybe you're going to keep someone for 18 months or something. These are kind of long-term employees and really allow us to have a longitudinal approach to the population and, and really decrease their costs over time. But yeah, COVID has really allowed our model to shine. I think many primary care clinics had to close or furlough providers during this time. Um, we didn't lose a single client. And I think we were able to demonstrate even more value to employers than before the pandemic. You know, for example, early in the pandemic, we were able to risk stratify every one of our patients by the newly released CDC criteria in terms of which risk factors would make you more likely to be ill if you did contract COVID. And so we went through them rank order. So every provider, you know, the next morning had a rank ordered list of which of their patients had the most of these factors down to the least. And within three weeks, we had had personal phone calls with, with the sickest of the patients to be able to personally say, hey, now at that point, everyone knows them now, but at that point they had just come out. Here are the CDC guidelines on how to stay safe. Do you have the meds you need to stay healthy while you're, you know, while you're inside, you know, to really reach out and be able to keep people healthy? I think then a little while later, we were partnering with employers on return to work efforts. What's the right way to screen people to come back in and to testing and doing pool testing? And so it, it's interesting that the pandemic really affected many primary care clinics, but for us, it really allowed us to shine. Yeah. And some of the things that obviously you, you spearheaded at the minute clinics like virtual care, I'm sure are a big centerpiece at, at Paladina Health. You're zooming out. Obviously, you've described some of the impacts at the organization, but you know, you've had a, a nice front row seat uh, as a clinician and also a, a leader in healthcare, both domestically and abroad. What are some of the lasting changes you think will happen as a result of the COVID pandemic? And there will be changes, right? I think every organization from COVID has seen some changes. Healthcare will be no different. Two I can think of is, one is that fee-for-service has issues. I think we've seen that, right? I mean, we see what happens when people don't want to leave or can't leave their houses. You know, clinical practices don't get paid. And value-based care is probably the future. I think that's put on center stage during this uh, pandemic. And the second is the need for an omni-channel approach to care. You know, before the pandemic, it was almost niche thinking that, you know, you could text with your provider or, and again, we were doing this before the pandemic because we didn't have a fee-for-service approach. We just needed to keep people healthy in whatever platform they wanted to use and whatever way we, we could reach them. And so, but I think that became more universally understood during this pandemic. Those are ones that keep coming up. We had Marcus Osborne, recently on the podcast. He's the head of Walmart Health, as you may know. And he was talking about omni-channel engagement, um, trying to provide you know, care, not only at Walmart, but at the home, 24 seven concierge access and those kind of things. You know, we have a large population of current and future healthcare professional students. You know, two questions for you related to that audience in particular. The first is, you know, what is your kind of sales pitch to get them to come work at Paladina? And then the second question uh, is, what advice would you give them as a clinician yourself about meeting the challenges at this moment and beyond? Yeah, well, the, you know, the only problem we have with recruiting providers is they usually don't believe that when we tell them how small the panel sizes are and how they get to really practice. They, they, you know, we've actually had one applicant say, I, I know you must be lying. I don't have time to figure out like how, but it, <laughs> it's too good. It's literally too good to be true. Um, it's great for the providers. They come in, they're well supported. We're about half a physician and about half APP, you know, nurse practitioners and physician assistants. 
it's a great place to work. It's a great place to build a career doing what you went to residency to do and what you um, maybe have felt lacking in some of these other more health system-based positions. The question on the advice, you know, the advice I would give, you know, you asked me how I chose medicine and I went through, some would consider it a delay. I didn't graduate college in exactly four years because I switched from physics to biology. Um, that was a good switch, a good use of time. I didn't switch from medicine to research because I spent an extra year, you know, out of the NIH doing research, but that was a year well spent. What I didn't say uh, was that then after that, you know, the trend continued. I was doing a surgery residency at the Cleveland Clinic and found that whenever I would go to the emergency room, I would be much more, uh, I was like, that really seems a lot neater. There's a lot more breadth of things here in different age groups. And, and I ended up, you know, starting all over and doing a four-year residency at Yale for emergency medicine. And so it won't surprise you that my advice would be to don't be afraid of rebelling against traditional timelines and, you know, be bold enough to listen to that voice inside, inside your head that's saying like, would this other thing actually make more sense? And don't be afraid to have the initiative to explore it because it's either going to allow you to find a path that is better suited for you or it will allow you to progress on your current path, but with no regrets. That's incredible advice and speaks to me personally because you know I was in med school at Hopkins, I did two years, then took time off to start this company, then did my MBA, uh, did two years, and now I've been full-time in the company. So every year or two, I talk to my dean at Hopkins and I'm like, next year I'm coming back, next year I'm coming back. And, uh, <laughs> but it's kind of a rich, a rich experience. And it reminds me too of, um, this great talk. I mean, you you're, you were an originally a physics major, so you'll appreciate this. But a talk by a Nobel laureate in physics, Wolfgang Ketterle uh, at MIT, who was talking about his own career, how instead of going A to B to C and through Z, right, linearly, he he compared it to, to sailing, where in sailing, very rarely do you sail from point A to point B. You often have to tack. Like the winds change, the currents change, you have to tack. And so you're kind of zigzagging through. And you know, life is rich. And I think that's really good advice, especially for our audience, where a lot of them are, you know, honestly, quite motivated to get it done, right? Like they see a 12 year college med school residency ahead of them, they're like, as quickly as I can get it done. But uh, you're living proof that, you know, you can have a very rich and interesting career, an impactful career, uh, that's also just beginning in many ways by taking the time to explore these other things. Yeah, I would say richer because of the of the different tax against the, uh, you know, what what happens. Totally. Uh, one other thing I'm going to ask you to prognosticate on is, again, we've had a lot of different primary care uh, and retail health uh, leaders and tech leaders. We've had the head of Facebook Health, YouTube Health, uh, Verily, as I mentioned, uh, with Vivian Lee. Given your work at CVS, too, and now Paladina, like, how do you think all of these uh, different models are going to coexist in value-based care, primary care, and then retail health care, which has a very different kind of structure than just a true primary care model? And when do you think we're going to get to like 50% value-based care penetration in the U.S.? It's a good question. And maybe maybe this pandemic has been the, you know, people kept waiting for the virtual care hockey stick. They're like, pretty soon it's going to just, everyone's going to be virtual <laughs> care. And I think that is happening now. I think the pandemic led to that. I, I think it would have taken much longer than forecast if, um, if that wouldn't have happened. It may be the case with value-based care too, you know, to many extent. I mean, we see a lot of providers that are understanding the downfalls of fee-for-service and are looking for other kind of more stable modes of, you know, making a living. And I think from, you know, most of the, I, I tend to rely on the fact that most of the time things that make sense probably going to find its way to the, to the top. 
And value-based care just makes so much sense. I mean, it's difficult to argue against a system that actually reimburses you more the healthier your patients are, not how many times you see them or how many tests you order, anything else. And, and to make them healthier, the sky's the limit. You know, and that's where these other companies you mentioned come in. It's partnerships. There are great digital platforms that you wouldn't be able to charge. A, there wouldn't be a nice code to charge it. But hey, if it helps... Um, get patients more likely to exercise and lose weight or helps for, you know, a variety of other things that these companies all can help with. I see a place for many of these partners that we, that we meet with, because I think they all do have a role and it's such an innovative space. And so many of these are innovative companies and trying to look at like unique ways of attacking many of these medical problems, even down to, you know, I think social determinants of health is going to become a bigger thing as well. I think that we're starting to learn and We've started to use partner with, with Aunt Bertha and others in our space because we realized that, you know, up to a third of people that um, are homeless actually have a job. So the fact that we're working for employers doesn't mean that we don't have patients that aren't affected by the fact that we could give them a great care plan and they could be just simply un, unable to, to buy the foods they need to stay healthy or to even worry about their health if they're wondering where to stay. So being able to link patients up with community resources that help to stabilize their overall life is in turn going to allow them to focus on their health. And so I think those kind of things aren't always apparent in a fee-for-service environment. But I think when you're responsible for just keeping people healthy, you, you can think outside the box like that. That's a really, really great thoughts. I'm glad you brought up the social determinants of health. My last question, is there anything else you'd like our audience to know about you, about Paladino, or anything else we haven't discussed? Uh, you know, thank you for having me on, Shiv. I didn't know the, of your own circuitous pathway. So good luck. Uh, good luck and, and congrats for taking the road less traveled. I think it is, as you said, a richer way to do things oftentimes. Happy to uh, be of assistance to any of your listeners who may have a particular question or query on, you know, in their, in their own life journey. Yeah, in the show notes, we'll, we'll definitely be able to, uh, to point them to your direction. Hopefully, some of them will wind up joining uh, Paladina and working with you, for you, et cetera. So with that, Dr. Barker, thanks for taking the time to be with us today, and more importantly, for the work that you've been doing for a while to raise the line and improve healthcare capacity. Thanks for the podcast and for your time, Shiv. With that, I'm Shiv Gulani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.